Chapter 10 The Cove Jim stared out at the darkness ahead, straining for any hint of the wreckage he knew was all around them. He gripped the wheel tight, his palms sweating into the rough wood as he guided the great ship through the graveyard. Starboard! Hard to starboard! Gam's voice carried out from the darkness above, barely audible above the din of the engine, just as Jim saw a hulking mass of rotten metal appear in the dim lantern light ahead. He wrenched the wheel to the right, but too late. The Archon groaned as it grazed against the festering metal, grinding and ripping and sending a cascade of night-dormant magflies scattering across the deck. There was an angry bang from beneath him, and he heard the captain's voice bellow from below. Easy, Jim! He wasn't ready for this. North was supposed to be the helmsman. Jim looked to his left, where North was slumped with a coil of tarred rope for a pillow, blind drunk on his latest batch of distillate. In fact, more than half the Argonauts were similarly afflicted, and now the great ship was being crewed by just thirteen, and not thirteen of the best. The wind between the islands was against them, and they were permitted to fire up the terrible old diesel engine, which was a mercy, as they would never have managed the sails between them. The grinding womp of the motor put the captain in a terrible mood, and even seemed to rouse the inhabitants of the other islands. Jim had seen more than one fire flare up on the small beaches or among the trees, queer silhouettes staring back at them in the night. North groaned beside him and muttered in his drunken slumber, Larbert, where is it stars? Before rolling over and passing out once more. The captain was below with Waylon, trying desperately to perform a dangerous tech spell called Hailing, by which they could somehow send a warning across the sky to reach the cove before the godsman did. Waylon had panicked at the suggestion. Apparently there was no surer way to attract the attention of the raptions, so strong was the trace involved, but the captain had insisted, pointing out that they would be long gone from the source of the signal by the time anything came to hunt them. While they worked, Jim had been tasked with the first watch at the helm. There was no time for subtlety. Once they were out of the graveyard, he was simply to point the ship right at the cove and let the crew figure out the setting of sail when the wind finally came. The map. I don't know where to go, Jim had protested as the captain had turned to hurry below. The captain threw one arm about Jim's shoulder, pressed close, and pointed at a star ahead. You see that star? The left foot of the rigger, just off the starboard bow. You've got it? Now, to its right, there. That second star on the right. You just point us there, Jim, and hold the course straight until morning, okay? Jim had nodded feebly, trying to fix the star in his mind, lest he lose himself and all the crew upon the open sea. But the constellation of the rigger was easy enough to spot, and though he lost it behind a cloud every now and then, he managed to doggedly keep the Archon trudging her course until dawn came, and he was relieved by a pale-looking north. There had been no response to the hailing a fact which set the captain on edge, though Waylon consoled him by pointing out that the fairies would have to be truly desperate in order to send word back. 
It was their home. They were not so fortunate as to be able to simply sail away from the trace it would create. A full day and a night passed like this, and despite a fine wind, the crew remained solemn, almost grim, subdued by the urgency of the voyage. Nix, rudely awakened from her brief daydream of happiness on the island, had again retreated within herself and sat, caked in sun-clay, always staring over the bowsprit or silently sharing the foremast with Gam. Jim tried to help Waylon plot their course across the new map as they went, taking North's reckonings of their speed and bearing and translating them into a crooked line that bore ever onward toward the small speck of yellow that marked the fairy home. And so it was that at first light on the third day, at dawn, they looked to the east and saw Lossalfheim. And it was burning. Distress spread like a muttering wave across the deck as the sighting was made. A clear tower of dark smoke carried north on the wind, the small, precious island cove beneath it. Nix was below, refreshing her sun clay, when Gam's call carried down from the foremast, and it was not until one of the twins was sent to fetch her that she learned what was going on. The smoke was the first thing she saw as she rushed above deck. A resolve came over her then. Jim had seen it happen. It was as if, through the set of her jaw and the clenching of her fist, she had managed to conjure a suit of armour to protect herself from feeling. There was no signing for help today, and Jim didn't know the right words to show her. Once the shock of the smoke had faded, the captain ordered Slip to beat to quarters. Caber's great frame drum was roused in a steady rhythm, and the crew rushed into action preparing themselves for close fighting. Jim, unpractised at battle, tried to help where he could, and found that the labour at least managed to keep the feeling of sickening dread at bay. He and Scup and Kelpie cleared the tables from the upper deck and prepared a space for Kelpie to work upon the wounded. But the sight of the medica's instruments and bloody rags was too much for Jim, who excused himself and dashed for air above deck. There, he found all obstructions had been cleared away, great boarding nets had been rigged, and the crew had outfitted themselves with all manner of arms, swords, beaters and knives, crude bows and mismatched armour. Even Nix had availed herself of a wicked spear that looked as if it had been hammered from a solid rod of bronze. Waylon called for assistance, and Jim soon found himself helping to distribute the various tech weapons among the crew. The long spear was familiar, with its great sparking tip that would immobilise its target, but there were also quivers of charged steel rods that could be shot from bows, bandoliers of handheld cylinders, each with a pair of sharp probes, and wooden beaters ringed with steel bands that hissed and fizzed in the morning air. Only when there were no more tasks to distract him did Jim find himself crouched behind the gunnels alongside the others clutching his small wrench knife and trying not to picture having to use it. His anxiety must have been clear because Mighty Boulder came alongside and offered him a short, single-handed crossbow and a hip quiver of the sparking bolts. Here, it will help keep the fighting at a distance, the huge, gentle boy smiled, then added with a shrug, at least until the darts run out. Jim thanked him and fitted the small quiver to his belt with trembling hands. 
An eerie silence fell over the ship as she glowed toward the island. The closer they drew, the more Jim could make out of the fabled fairy home. On all sides the cove was unbreachable, all but for a narrow chasm that yawned black on its western shore, and for which they headed. The sentinels are gone, Boulder said quietly, a grim expression on his broad face as they drew closer to the gully. Jim followed his gaze and saw a half-dozen great alcoves in the high rock walls, each the height of two men. The cliff face looked as if it had been beaten half to death by a great giant of the sea, though Jim suspected cannon fire was the true cause. A mighty field gun lay crippled and broken, its rent barrel protruding from one of the alcoves, but the rest were empty. Others among the crew began to notice, and confused glances and whispers began to spread along the gunwales as the ship slid deftly between the narrow cliffs. Jim searched for Nix, and found her near the bow, gripping the wooden railing so hard he thought she might snap her own fingers. There was a screeching cry, and Jim saw Puggle streaking above the mast, tangling and coiling high in the air with another pheasant, though whether playfully or violently, he couldn't tell. Nix turned to him, confusion and worry etched on her tired face. Can you hear the fighting? she demanded. Jim paused for a moment to listen. No, there is nothing, he signed. He had taken the eerie silence for granted, not thinking through what it meant. Whatever had happened here, the fighting was over. Nix swallowed and turned back to her vigil. The gully was so close on either side of the ship that Jim felt he could have touched it with the tip of Nix's spear. Two of the Arconauts were ready at the bow with the great fending poles, but North's expert piloting guided them silently through the channel and suddenly out into a wide, curving lagoon surrounded by craggy rock. The signs of battle were all about. The pillar of smoke, it seemed, came from the far side of the island, but there was wreckage aplenty here in this inner sea. Three great steel ships protruded from the water, sunk and burnt and abandoned, already buzzing with magflies, and a pile of pirate dead lay heaped and smouldering upon the steep shore. The Archon's sails were let out, and she drifted slowly among the wrecks as the crew scanned the rocks, fearing some trap or ambush. Who goes there? The voice echoed all around the protected cove. Speak, or suffer the fate of these others. The ships. The voice was coming from the wreckage of the steel ships. The captain sprung atop the gunwales and faced them, pulling his cap from his head and calling, Gil Mackinock, Inkainen, friend and captain of the Archon. I bring home Nix, of your kin, daughter of Malvor. The captain beckoned for Nix, who, still clutching her spear, strode to join him. Prove it! The captain hesitated, looking round at his ship. Prove what? That she is Nix? That I am in Kynan? Or that this is indeed the Archon? Have you seen many wooden vessels of late? A face appeared in the wreckage of the nearest drowned ship, grim and greyed with sun clay the white hair almost black with the grime of battle. Prove that you are a friend, spoke the face. 
Let the girl go. Luwe, called the captain. I have known you since you were a boy. Let her go then, insisted the voice. And prove that the friendship holds. The captain turned to Nix, helping her up to the gunwale. He struggled clumsily at the sign, pointing at her, then the water, then made a crude swimming motion and pointed at the grim face across the water. It seemed to be enough. With a nod and a quick glance back toward the crew, Nix handed him the bronze spear and dived from the ship with barely a splash. Jim rushed to the side after her and saw only a white streak gliding through the blue, leaving a trail of sun clay behind it like smoke in the water. The release of their captive seemed to be enough to demonstrate the intentions of the crew. Soon more ferries began to emerge from the wreckage, and small boats were rowed out to the Archon to ferry the crew to the rocky beach, though great care was taken to ensure no weapons left the ship. The captain was on the first boat ashore and called for Jim to join him that he might translate for Nix if the need arose. Jim felt like he was wandering into a daydream as he climbed out of the curious boat and onto the island alongside Slip and Darge. Nix had been the first and only fairy he'd seen. She was slight and silent and willful. It was easy to forget that she was not some magical sprite blown in on the wind, but part of a race of others just like her. And yet not so like her, it seemed. These fairy men wore the same impossibly white skin under their crust of sun clay, but where she was slight, they were strong and muscular. Where she was silent, they spoke with deep, guarded voices, as if they were always listening at the horizon. Despite the standoff on the water, Uluwe greeted the captain with a fierce embrace, apologising for his lack of faith. It seemed the attackers had breached the cove with a similar ruse, pretending to have brought Nix home, only to then summon reinforcements and take control of the island. The good mother. She listened to some rogue pirate, the captain asked in disbelief. She opened the gate without seeing proof. Ah. <sighs> But it was not just any pirate, sighed Uluwe. It was the blood-lettered Tsar himself that came, with some poor harbour girl dressed up like Nix and the head of the captain that had taken her. The captain's face grew dark at hearing Tsar's name, and he strode beside Uluwe along the shore in silence. Throughout this exchange, Nix had been treated like little more than a trophy. Surrounded by the strongest of her kin, dried and wrapped in a sunshawl, but unable to speak, unable to understand what was happening. Eventually, she shouldered her way free of her bodyguard and found Jim. Bypassing everything, she reached simply for the sign for questioning. Jim tried his best to fill her in, tried to explain what little he understood of what was happening here, but for everything he told her, three new questions arose, and he was soon of little help. Eventually, the party reached a sheer face of rock, jagged and rough, pockmarked and scorched by recent gunfire. Uluwe stepped forward and banged a heavy steel staff against the floor. Uluwe! Final son! he boomed. Jim flinched as a voice echoed through the rock, seemingly from a dozen places all at once. What is hidden in snow? Without hesitation, Uluwe answered, Is revealed at Thor. There was a pause, 
Then a great wrenching of steel from within the rock, and a portion of the stone swung outward toward them. A great circle, as wide as a man's reach, backed with steel and hung upon mighty hinges. The sounds of mournful singing flooded out of the door like a wave, and though the inside was dark against the bright morning sun, Jim saw many lights sparkling within. It reminded him of a stone that a passenger upon the trussel had shown him once, dull and unremarkable on the outside, but that when split open revealed a tiny cavern of jewels. A knot of fairies stood in the doorway to receive them. Jim counted five. There was a couple, or perhaps a brother and sister. It was hard for him to see past the identical colouring. They looked fraught and tired and seemed to lean upon one another for support. There was a pair of fairy men that looked like they too had once been powerfully built like a lue, but time and no small share of recent wounds had sapped them of their strength. And before them all, an ageing, white spectre of a woman. She was short and appeared hunched by some invisible weight, her locked hair reaching almost to her knees, but she still held her head high and there was a solemn dignity in the pools of her eyes that Jim couldn't help but be drawn to. Nix shoved past him and darted to the couple, who dropped to their knees and wrapped her into a weeping, trembling embrace. Jim felt a pang of envy at the sight of the reunited family, though it was swiftly drowned by a wave of guilt at his own selfishness. The old woman stepped forward and surveyed the newcomers her big, dark eyes reflecting the daylight without. She nodded gently. Inkainen, you come to us at a time of great sorrow. The captain strode forward and, removing his hat, knelt at the old woman's feet. I am sorry, matron. We were too late, he said, staring at the ground. Respect, boy. She is named Good Mother growled one of the old warriors, but he was silenced with a wave of the old woman's hand. You tell a kneeling man of respect, Tusan. When was it you last kneeled for me, huh? Come, Gil, on your feet. And she pulled the captain upright with surprising vigour and embraced him. Better late than not at all. And bearing such sweet gifts, too, she added, turning to Nix, who was signing urgently with her sobbing parents. Jim looked away, fearing to intrude upon their privacy. Make space for our guests, Sutan, and see that they are fed. The good mother pulled back from the captain, her nose wrinkling. And bathed too, I think. I'm sorry. It has been a long voyage. Less of this sorry, hm? She tisked. It's not a coat that fits a captain, I think. Now come, we have much to speak on. Taking his arm, the good mother turned to lead deeper into the cavern. Slip laid a hand on Jim's shoulder and whispered, Welcome to the cove. And together they followed deeper into the fairy home. Losselfheim was, it seemed, a network of sea caves that had long ago been joined and bored out by the work of men. It seemed almost that a timeless war was being waged, smooth, precise passages cut by ancient machines giving way to cavernous chambers of natural rock, jagged and knife-like and wet, sculpted by the sea. 
Everywhere, glassy pools of water reflected a twinkling starlight that was trapped in the vaulting ceilings above, though whether from some artificial tech source or a natural phenomenon, Jim couldn't tell. He wasn't sure what he'd expected. Pale creatures sitting in moonlit trees, laughing and playing harps, perhaps. Whatever it was, it wasn't this. Far from being gay and happy, this place felt like an imprisoned memory of the past. There was a terrible sense of sorrow among the fair folk, and it seemed magnified, echoed and rebounded off the rock walls, like their longing, mourning songs. And everywhere, among all the ancient grandeur, there were signs of battle. Jim overheard much of what was said between the captain and the good mother, and what he missed he managed to piece together later. It seemed Sar, desperate as he was to keep the cove a secret, had realised the hope was lost and had thrown in his lot with the church, providing them with a small army in the form of his franchise Rugian fleet. He had sailed the Fomor to the cove under engine, and then with only a rowboat and a knot of his crew to guard their false prisoner, had approached the gate as he did each year for treatment this time presenting Captain Narciss' head as proof of his intentions. The moment the gate was opened, hell broke loose. The four Morians killed the girl, and then the gatekeepers, and by the time the fairies had assembled some resistance, the rest of the fleet had arrived. The sentinel guns held off most, but a half-dozen made it to the inner sea, flooding the shore with pirates. Some brave fairies hauled and sunk three of the invading vessels, but it was too late. They were outnumbered a hundred to one. The whole thing lasted less than an hour. The battle, at least. The occupation of Losselheim had lasted many days more while they searched for their answers. The seed of the fair folk, the captain asked, adding, They tried to learn it from Nix? Yes. The good mother gritted her teeth. Though I would speak those words with caution here. Much suffering has been borne for the sake of them. The column had drawn closer to the epicentre of the morning. A vaulting chamber in which a dozen bodies were arranged, laid each beneath a white sheet. Fairy fullgrowns knelt beside some, weeping and swaying and calling out in their long, undulating grief song. No, Nix, her father called uselessly as she shrugged free of her parents' grasp and ran to one of the bodies. Letting out her own discordant cry of anguish, she collapsed, clutching at the form beneath the sheet. The couple already knelt beside the body, wept all the louder for this fresh grief, and drew her into a sorrowful embrace. They brought a relic with them, the good mother continued. Not tech, not even an artefact of the scanned, but some of their descendants, perhaps. A panel of beaten copper, edged with the old tongue. There were many ramblings, talk of a return to glory, of food inexhaustible, and a sun that never sets. But among it all, they obsessed over one passage. Later, Mar... Fedrana verda ad coma til badnana. Leithin ir fali i freyu aulana. 
It translates roughly to the secrets of the fathers must pass to the children. The way is hidden within the seed of the fair folk. She stared darkly at the young dead before her, weary with grief. All that death and pain, all because of one word, misunderstood, mistranslated. The godsmen are so obsessed with their heresies and their sins, blood and death and lust. They read, Seed of the Fair Folk, and thought of nothing but breeding, sex, offspring. She fought to stop her voice from breaking. Our children. They had a splicer with them, despite their laws, and one by one they brought our young to her, searching in their blood and flesh and bone for their secret, while we looked on, helpless. Only on the third day, after all this, did they come to me and reveal the relic. Leithin irfalin ifreyu alfana. Not offspring, not children. That is a trick of their language, not ours. Freyu, to us, literally means seeds. Seeds, the captain repeated, turning the problem over in his mind. What seeds do you have? The good mother nodded toward the west. None. Not any longer. You saw the smoke when you arrived? It comes from Loon Hall. They found their answer in the splice of our meal trees. Moments in took them. So clear was the message, hidden right in the genes of our sacred trees. A map. Now it seems, we begin to see the mind of our creators, and why those trees were made to be so revered. A map to Thule? Jim gasped, overhearing. The good mother turned to him and seemed to weigh him with the light of her deep eyes. At length she nodded. And the smoke? asked the captain. They burned every tree, every leaf, every root, all to ensure the map would be erased. So it's over then. They've done what they came to do. The good mother shook her head sadly. No, child. For them, it has just begun. Our voyage through the world of the Risen Tide continues in the next episode, which will be here in just a few days. New chapters will be released on Monday and Thursday every week, so hit subscribe to stay up to date, or if you just can't wait, the full tale is available today on Audible, Spotify and more. If you'd rather read than listen, head over to talesoftherisentide.com or Amazon to grab yourself a hard copy or ebook. Thanks for listening.